Good morning to those of you who are watching with us here online. It is so good to be with you for another Sunday morning. And if you're watching, you may or may not know that this is a pretty big Sunday for us at Mars Hill Bible Church because it is the first Sunday that we are hosting a live in-person gathering here in the shed since March. And so I want to begin this morning by naming a couple of realities. There are some of you watching online right now that wish you were not alone. I'm thinking of one of our sisters in our community who's battling a chronic illness and others like her. Some are at home and you can hardly hear me over your barking dog or your toddler who just spilled the last bit of 2% milk all over the kitchen floor. I'm thinking of a couple families in our community that recently had new babies and who are struggling to find any sense of equilibrium or meaningful connection with others in this season. So being at home for you is actually hard. And there are others who are present with me in the shed right now. And this is a day that they have long awaited. Within the crowd, some are whispering words they wouldn't want their pastor to hear under their mask because they're uncomfortable. Some have been craving new community. I'm thinking of a server at a local restaurant here in the Grand Rapids area that Delwyn and I met just last week, and he and his friends might actually be here this morning. We are separate, and yet we are one. Can we still recognize and embrace each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, given this new reality this morning? I learned something in this vein just recently when our kids started playing community soccer. It's really cute. The parents help the little kids out with drills. The kids learn footwork and teamwork. And then there's a game. And in one particular game recently, the kids were separated into two teams and the parents were sprinkled throughout to help the teams along. But then something strange happened. The whistle blew and the kids started playing, but in minutes, just a couple of minutes, I paused and I looked around and it was mass chaos. Kids were switching teams indiscriminately. Some kids were kicking the ball toward their opponent's goal. An overzealous grown-up pelted a kid in the head with a soccer ball, cueing tears, and a baby just randomly ran across the field. All of a sudden, you couldn't tell who belonged to whom. It was a free-for-all. And though I knew who was on my team... I knew these kids could no longer point out and identify who they were meant to link arms with from the beginning, or even their original purpose as a team. Does this sound at all familiar to you this morning? In the past weeks and months, if you're like me, we've gotten really good at identifying chaos we find ourselves amidst a pandemic approaching what's arguably the most contentious presidential election of our time. Our financial systems have been rocked. 
Our education system is enduring changes we've never seen before, and experts are concerned about our collective mental health. Division seems more prevalent than unity, and we haven't even begun to talk about your personal chaos, the diagnosis, the mortgage, the stress, the family tension. There's chaos on the field. And because of that chaos, in some ways, it's become difficult to link arms with others in the body of Christ and remember who we are meant to be in the midst of it all. Perhaps what's become more prevalent and defining are signs in yards or how someone is now talking about the school board's decisions. Church, we cannot afford to be confused by the chaos. We cannot afford to be confused about who we are as the body of Christ. Now more than ever, we must be sure about our original purpose and who we're meant to be in the world. Instead of succumbing to and being led by all that's changing then, let's set our sights on and recommit ourselves to serving and proclaiming a faithful God whose love endures forever and who doesn't change. A God who is steadfast. If you've been around Mars Hill for any length of time, you know our vision. You'll see it here on the screen. We are a Jesus people for the sake of the world. My one-year anniversary on staff here at Mars Hill was just this past week, and that phrase already rolls off my tongue so naturally. But sometimes what comes naturally is so familiar that we forget why we say it and what it means. Likewise, our church has adopted a mission that we believe in and that we're committed to, and that's living out the way of Jesus in missional communities, announcing the arrival of his kingdom, working for measurable change among the oppressed. We believe this vision and mission are compelling and challenging and confounding sometimes to the watching world. But I hope that what's clear in this season of change and transition in our lives, in our church, and in the world, is that we long to be faithfully rooted in who God is and who we are as his church, come what may. We long to be more unified in a time of division, more peace-filled in a time of anxiety, and more loving in a time of contention. So over the next eight weeks, we're taking a break from our Messiah series based out of the Gospel of John to prepare ourselves in soul, mind, body, and strength to proclaim anew the steadfastness of God, and our desire to be steadfast in the wake of our current cultural climate. We're going to take two weeks, starting today, and talking about what it means to be a Jesus people. Gary Burge, who's the dean of Calvin Theological Seminary and a dear friend of Delwyn's and mine, he'll join us next Sunday 
and talk about the characteristics of the early church as summarized in the first few chapters of Acts. Then we'll take two weeks and talk about what it means to be this Jesus people, but specifically for the sake of the world. And the remaining four weeks will be spent taking in our mission together in a fresh way. Each week, we're not just going to talk about the vision or the mission. We're going to practice it by partnering a discipline we can engage together as a community. The hope is that in faith, we might become formed into a clearer image of Christ here in West Michigan or wherever you're watching. Perhaps even as the world around us becomes more unclear and more chaotic. I think these next eight weeks will be ones of clarified conviction, refinement, and humility for us as a church. The goal is that we know the steadfastness of God and who we're meant to be as Mars Hill Bible Church in our specific time and context. So let's officially kick off our eight weeks in our steadfast series by looking at a specific interaction that takes place in Luke's gospel where Jesus calls his first disciples. Think about right now a sports team you or someone you know really loves and ask yourself, why? Why are you a Pistons or a Lions fan? Why do you decide to cheer on Michigan or Michigan State? There is a part of your life, perhaps, that's defined by that team or community or institution. And as a result, you wear certain colors identifiable by that team. Um, you wear those things everywhere you go so other people know. You sacrifice other commitments to watch games, sometimes even church. You know who you are. You'll sing the fight song or buy the decal for your car. As a fan, your life follows certain attitudes and behaviors. I'm not a Detroit Lions fan because I just say I'm a Detroit Lions fan. I'll show you a Detroit Lions fan. This is Brad Gordon. He's an awesome member of our community. We love him. Here he is. He took the paper bag off to celebrate a Lions win. We're happy for you, Brad. So how do we know Brad is a Lions fan? Because the Lions aren't even that great. And Brad sticks with them anyway. He's not in it for the wins necessarily. He's in it because the lions mean something to his life, where he grew up. Look at him. He's beaming. The same, my friends, should be true of us as a Jesus people. As a Jesus people, our lives should be defined by Jesus. We should wear our lives a certain way. We sacrifice other realities to be together and to be unified as we worship, as we are generous. And now is a great time to look at this call to follow Jesus again. Because can I say something that might be a little different from what I heard growing up in some ways? Following Jesus isn't easy. It's not about attaining a life that 
pushes us and pursues us up into the right in that type of success. It's a life that serves, that sacrifices, that gives away. It's a life that's proximate to the outcast and seeks healing and justice for the oppressed, seeks transformation and repentance for sinners. It's a life that will confuse some and could very well put you on the other side of someone's slander or label. And the beginning of that life for each person who initially decided to say yes to following Jesus is detailed in different ways throughout the Gospels. But there are distinct characteristics of those people that's crucial for us to notice today if we are truly going to be a Jesus people in the midst of this chaos. So here in Luke 5, we find Jesus standing by the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee. He gets into Simon's boat, sits down and teaches the people from the boat in a seated position as was custom for teachers of the day. So imagine Jesus in this boat on the lake that perhaps made it possible for him to be surrounded on either side of him as if he were in an amphitheater. Upon finishing his teaching, he singles out Simon. Now remember, Jesus is largely a stranger to the disciples, though Simon had just witnessed Jesus heal his mother-in-law and others in his family at the tail end of Luke chapter 4. So his heart's pump has been primed. He's seen Jesus do miracles, and Jesus gives Simon these instructions specifically. He says, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. So this is interesting here because imagine someone coming to you on the job after pulling an all-nighter. Simon had just been fishing all night and caught nothing. Imagine coming to, someone coming to you after you pulled an all-nighter, trying to fix a problem or unsuccessfully finishing a presentation after not succeeding at the thing that you know how to do best a random guy you know very little about, but his reputation is solid, but he doesn't even know what you do. And he tells you to go back and do it again. Remember, Jesus is a carpenter. Simon is a fisherman. And here we have Jesus telling Simon to go back to what he had just finished doing and to do it again. We see something stunning about how Simon responds to Jesus. If that were me, I perhaps would be quite frustrated and tired and worn out. But Simon's response points us to our first characteristic or marker of someone who's been captivated and defined by Jesus. And this is someone who responds with committed obedience. The first word out of Simon's mouth is master or epistada in Greek. 
This is the first time the word is used in the New Testament, and it's only used by Luke, but it translates to a prefect or an authority who's placed over others as a teacher or a guide. Simon knows something from his personal experience that Jesus's words hold weight and they are not to be ignored. So Simon calls Jesus master. And then, though he is weary from a long night of work, he responds with a brief explanation. Perhaps it's an excuse in opposition. But then in faith, he actually listens. He tells Jesus that because Jesus says so, he'll let down his nets again. As a Jesus people, Mars Hill, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus's teaching compelling enough for us to call him master? And then is it compelling enough for us to actually listen? Do his words captivate us? Does his authority call us to attention? Do his teachings invite us to be caught up into who he is and respond in ways that may make no sense or even call us forward into something that seems so inconvenient for us? A Jesus people is captivated by Jesus and responds faithfully in committed obedience even if it doesn't make sense to us. I think about friends who've quit their jobs or taken jobs for lesser pay or who've added to their family through fostering or adoption, many of you watching right now, or who've traveled to dangerous places across the world because Jesus's teaching has so compelled you, has so compelled them, even when it seems really crazy. Many of you know this is the story of our youngest and her journey into our home. Just this past week, we celebrated her adoption being finalized. And let me tell you, that was a huge step of obedience because we had no idea what lay on the other side of that decision. And we thought we were done. But in listening to Jesus's teaching, being captivated by his words through the movement of the spirit, here we found ourselves taking a step of committed obedience toward him. And we're grateful for that. Simon soon found out on the other side of that committed obedience that what was present was power and provision beyond what he could have ever imagined. A result so extravagant, he couldn't tend to it on his own. The text says he had to call others for help. And his response to that miracle, to this abundance of fish so heavy that the boats were being weighed down is a second characteristic of someone captivated by Jesus. Simon, upon seeing this abundance of fish, he kneels in contrite humility. He says, go away, Jesus. I am a sinful man in verse eight. And it's because he knows that what he's just 
witnessed must be connected to deity in some way. The power and the knowledge of Jesus is obvious. And like many who encountered the presence of God in the Old Testament, Abraham, Job, and Isaiah, Simon Peter falls prostrate before Jesus. He was trembling and afraid. Everyone was astonished. Simon Peter, he saw what Jesus did and didn't casually accept the work as normal or commonplace. He and others with him, they recognized the work as evidence of Jesus's power. And he held that power up to his own sin and he humbled himself before him. A Jesus people church is amazed by in awe of and humbled in the presence of Jesus's work. As we came out of our Messiah series in the past few weeks, we saw the comparison of how Jesus's followers responded to his works and how the Jewish leaders responded. He healed a blind man and the Pharisees were fixated on the fact that it was the Sabbath. Lazarus was raised from the dead and the leaders plotted to take his life. But his sheep believed. And I really do believe, church, that we're in an age where the Lord is purifying his church, calling us collectively into deeper repentance, inviting us to let him love us more, as Troy reminded us so beautifully last week. This season from my vantage point has been one of exposure. It's exposed my personal limitations and my brokenness, but it's also served as an opportunity to identify with Christ in his suffering so that we might do as Paul charged us in Philippians 2, where he says, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is where we have to be alert, church. If any other earthly system or leader is master, we'll be obedient and react to that system or individual. But if Christ is master, we'll imitate him. We'll need to decide whether we resist him or fall before his feet. Because only our Jesus Christ models the perfect humility needed to serve the world. A Jesus people church is amazed by, in awe of, and humbled in the wake of Jesus's power and presence. But it's also a people that is willing to confess, not defend our sin, in our brokenness, in light of who Jesus Christ is as Lord. In the past few days, I have been praying the prayer of Psalm 139, verse 23, and we are going to bring the beginning of this prayer into our practice in just a little bit. But it's a dangerous prayer to pray, to invite the Spirit of God to search me and to know me and to test me in my anxious thoughts to see if there is any offensive way in me, and then to lead me in the way everlasting. 
It's interesting what the Spirit might bring up if we invite ourselves to be searched in that regard. Simon does this, and he's met with this response from Jesus in Luke 5, chapter, in Luke 5, verse 10, where Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. Or that could be translated as stop being fearful. Jesus sees Simon's contrite humility and he loves him by casting out his fear. Fleming Rutledge in her book, The Crucifixion, says this about those words that Jesus spoke to Peter. Without that merciful reassurance, the human being would be annihilated by the burning holiness of God. This sense of the distance between God and his creation must always be held in tension with the intimate closeness of the personal God who draws near to us in grace, or else we are in danger of having no God except the one we have fashioned to suit ourselves. It is then given Simon's posture and Jesus's assurance that Simon is able to receive his new assignment, to be a fisher of people, of living things, not just of dead fish. All of this culminates into a final characteristic of Simon's calling to follow Jesus, and that's complete surrender. Craig Keener notes that even on a bad night, fishermen would have still been in a better financial position than most Galileans, many of whom were peasants. And here we see Simon, James, John, and theologians assume Andrew was there too. They leave everything, their source of income and economic stability included, to follow Jesus. They surrendered everything, and it was actually in the opposite direction of the miracle. You think they might have stayed back and enjoyed the fish. They had the potential to make bank on that day's catch, but it wasn't about the miracle for them. The miracle wasn't the main attraction. The master was. And here's where I feel we might take heart today, Marcel. Simon recognizes his sin in Jesus' presence. His partners are amazed. They witness his work. But then they follow him into the unknown. No guarantee of success or recovery. No guarantee of safety or health or power. They follow Jesus into the unknown, perhaps even into chaos, because Jesus has just shown himself and his power to be worth more than their security. A Jesus people church is willing to give up everything, if necessary, to follow Jesus into the unknown. A season like the one we find ourselves in right this very day, not just our physical possessions, but our emotions, our attitudes and resentments. Because a Jesus people 
knows that Jesus is worth more than anything else. In summary then, a Jesus people responds faithfully in committed obedience, is humbled in his presence, and is willing to give up everything because they know he's worth more than anything else, even in the midst of chaos. As I mentioned earlier, part of our weekly time together for the next few weeks from now until Advent will be intentionally engaging a spiritual discipline. We don't just want to receive together. We want to live and encounter the presence of God together. For this week, in reminding ourselves what it means to be a Jesus people, we are going to walk a practice of surrender every day until the next time we meet on October 11th, starting right now. If it's possible from where you sit or watch, this is a practice of surrender that has been called Palms Up, Palms Down, based out of Richard Foster's work, Celebration of Discipline. And it's really three steps. It's silence, and then an invitation to release, and an invitation to receive. So I invite you now to find a comfortable position. And I am going to paraphrase Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 over us as we sit in silence and ready our hearts. God, we steady ourselves now and we silence our hearts, our minds, our internal dialogue. We tune out any external noise in order to center ourselves before you. God, would you search us and know us? God, would you test us and know our anxious thoughts? Would you see if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting by your spirit? And now I'm going to invite you to just take your palms and point them downward as if in a physical posture of releasing things to Jesus. And we're going to pray, God, thank you that as we are reminded of what it means to be a Jesus people, we want to be able to respond in obedience to respond in contrite humility and to follow you completely in surrender. And so God, we start this morning by surrendering any anxiety we're carrying, God. Any unforgiveness that we're harboring, any resentment, any thoughts that are not of you, any emotions that would prevent us from being one with you and our fellow brother or sister, any anger, any bitterness that's unhelpful, God. We release that to you right now. 
And now I invite you to uh, turn your palms upward in a posture of receiving whatever the Spirit might have for you this morning. We pray now, Holy Spirit, would you lead us this morning? We receive this teaching. Would you show us a way forward or what it means for our lives as a Jesus people? We receive instruction. We receive what you're doing in our midst, in our lives, God. May we receive in awe and wonder. And God, we also receive any new assignments that you're placing before us this morning. People you want us proximate to. Any new ventures you're calling us out to. Holy Spirit, speak to us now as we receive from you this morning. close our time in this practice by saying God continue to form us into a Jesus people that looks more and more like your son with more clarity even amidst the chaos that swirls around us and in us God in our neighborhoods in our communities and also in our own hearts Lord may this next few weeks be a time of deep formation may we say yes and full obedience to you. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So friends, we invite you to do that practice throughout this week leading up to next Sunday. And now as we come to the table, we're reminded that this meal is a tangible reminder that Christ came as master over the chaos of death and darkness. And he did it in committed obedience to his father, contrite humility in giving up what was rightfully his in complete surrender to the will of God the Father, showing us the way. We come to this table asking God to examine our hearts as we prepare to receive freely this reminder of salvation secured in Jesus's body and blood. So it's in that spirit that I say, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come Holy Spirit, Fall fresh upon these elements. 
would you turn this meal into nourishment for our souls as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made? Do now what you have done for generations, for hundreds of years, in reminding us of the magnificence of this sacrifice represented in this meal. Thank you, in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, we are joined by brothers and sisters across the world who are celebrating this meal with us today, proclaiming the mystery of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection for all people. And so we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Church, receive who you are, the body of Christ.